you'll know where I'm going. I'd like to begin reading in chapter 26, Matthew's Gospel, verse 1. It came about that when Jesus had finished all these words, he came to his disciples. He said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man is to be delivered up for crucifixion. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, lest a riot occur among the people. Now when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it upon his head as he reclined at table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this, and they said, What is the point of this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For the poor you have with you always, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume upon my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done shall also be spoken of in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me to deliver him up to you? And they weighed out to him thirty pieces of silver. And from then on he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. I believe more as I've read through the book of Matthew, I'm suggesting to you, and I have concluded in my mind, I believe it was written as a discipleship manual, explaining why it makes sense to be devoted to Jesus the Messiah and what it means to follow Jesus as Lord and Master. Now, what is the goal of a disciple of Jesus Christ? I would suggest to you, looking at Matthew chapter 5, 16 and other parts of the Scriptures, that you could summarize the goal of being a disciple is to please Jesus, to please God, and to live for His glory. And one area of discipleship which repeatedly needs addressing involves the issue of our hearts. Because all behavior and all choices flow out of our hearts. All of us are wired in our hearts for worship. We all worship. The question is, Who or what are you worshiping? All of us are devoted to something or someone. And either we're devoted to God or we are devoted to the the idols or things that are made by God. Either we're devoted to the God who's made all things or we're devoted to something that has been made by God. And one way to discover if your heart is devoted to idols is to ask yourself a couple of questions. Here's some interesting diagnostic questions. How do I respond when I don't get what I want? Hmm. That's one of those hmm questions. How do I respond when I don't get what I want? Or am I willing to sin in order to get what I want? These questions will bring to the surface often the fact that we do have some things in our hearts and lives that we love more than we love God more than we love Jesus Christ. And if what we want becomes more important than pleasing God, we know for sure we have at least one idol in our hearts. 
Now, we all struggle with this. I'm not suggesting that I'm immune to this. We all do. And depending on how you answer that question any given day can reveal to you the fact that we all might have that struggle going on. But I want to come to this text of Scripture this morning. It's a fascinating text because it's been composed in such a way by Matthew that he wants to highlight a set of contrasting loyalties. He's going to contrast these opposing hearts of devotion. It's clear that Matthew has sandwiched together here several people whose hearts on the one hand, up here at the top and the bottom, people whose hearts are full of self-serving idolatry. It's very clear. And he contrasts that with the one person in the middle whose heart is devoted to, out of a love for Christ, out of a devotion to Christ, a willingness to sacrifice and give to him in an amazingly surrendered way. And so the setting of this events now that we read about in, verse, in chapter 26 are the final days of Jesus' earthly ministry. His death is only a several days away. And the cross, from this section on through the end of the book here, the cross looms large in the background of everything that's happening. And you'll notice here that Jesus' formal teaching, verse 1, has come to an end. Now, I've skipped over one last vast portion of his teaching. We'll get to that later. But his teaching, formal teaching, has now been done. And the time of preparation for his death is clearly the focus from here on out. And we find in our text, if you will, think of it this way, like an Oreo cookie. I'm sure most of you have at least had several stacks of Oreos in your life. An Oreo cookie has what? Two dark wafers with the white light icing inside, right? So we're looking at the two darkened hearts at the beginning and end of this text. Inside we see an amazing example of memorable and commendable selfless devotion to Jesus. Let's look at our first point then. What do we see here in the text? Well, we see in verses 1 through 5 and verses 14 to 16, hearts that are devoted to idols. Hearts devoted to idols. Notice, first of all, that they're plotting against Jesus. As throngs of pilgrims gathered in this annual celebration of the Passover, the chief priests and the scribes, who had unsuccessfully attempted to entrap Jesus with various controversial questions earlier that we've looked at, notice verse 4, what they're involved in doing. They plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth or secretly and kill him. Now, just reading that itself ought to shock us. These are religious leaders. These are spiritual leaders. These are people who were in charge of the responsibility of leading the worship among the Jews of the first century. They're plotting someone's murder. It's clear that Jesus, the more he displayed his supreme wisdom, the more he displayed his, his uh, immeasurable power, the more he, he shared of his penetrating, truthful teaching, the more these religious leaders became what? Indignant. And they were determined to destroy him because he was a threat to their positions of religious authority. How do you react when you don't get what you want? Here's the answer for these guys. Let's destroy this person. Let's get rid of him. And you'll notice according to John 12, 43, we know that these religious leaders loved the approval of men more than the approval of God. Boy, does that become obvious as we look at their actions. 
as we look at their choices, we find out what the real area of devotion in their heart is. It's to themselves and to their popularity, to the approval they get from other people. And all they're plotting now, all this planning, is centered around their heart's desire to hold on to their positions of political power and popularity. And this is why they wanted to implement their sinister schemes to kill Jesus secretly. That's the key word here, stealthily. They wanted to do it undercover, under wraps, do it on the side, because they don't want to do it during the middle of some big uh, Passover a gathering, the big feast time in Jerusalem. Why? Because they are afraid of a riot. And that's why the Romans would always send lots of extra troops in there because they've had similar problems in the past. This many people gathering, oftentimes something done would get them riled up and next thing you know, you've got a riot on your hands. And one indicator I would suggest to you of idolatry that exists in the human heart, which is so prevalent among all of us, is an elevated view of yourself. You see, we're in no different category than these men on some level. These religious leaders came up with a plan to, sounds a little extreme, but to murder an innocent person in order to safeguard their own comfort and security. But isn't it true that all of us have thrown somebody under the bus in order to save our skin? Haven't we all told a lie that somebody else had to bear the brunt of something that we should have taken responsibility for? Haven't we all done something at some point that says, I care more about myself than you? We certainly have. And since Jesus was considered a threat to their agenda, they attempted to carry out their plans at a time when it provided the least amount of impact for them. So it wouldn't backfire. So it wouldn't cause a lot of riot, cause a lot of additional Roman oversight. They don't want those things to happen because they want their positions of power. And so the idol of living for the approval of other people leads some individuals to, ex- to exert control over their situations and over other people so that they may obtain what they really want. Isn't that true? You know somebody that's a real uh, detail-oriented person who wants to control everything and all the little details around them, everything has to be just right? They vacuum their house 16 times a day? That person is what? They're into control. They want to make sure that things are just right. You look at uh, James chapter 4, 1 through 3, take time and read that later, you'll find that what? Sometimes there's fightings. Sometimes there's quarrels. Why? Because somebody wants control and they want to make sure that their way is brought forward so that they win in a particular engagement. Now, another characteristic of heart idolatry clearly is the issue of not only focusing on self, but also the level of deception. And this is interesting how Matthew brings this up in the way he describes this. Here, these religious leaders thought they were in control. Man, they love control. And so they think, we've got control, we've got our plans, we're going to make this thing happen secretly. But their plans did not come to pass as they had initially planned. Here, notice what Jesus says in the text here, verse 2. Jesus makes very clear that he predicts yet again, for the fourth time now in the Gospel of Matthew, he predicts again that his death would occur. This time he says it's only two days away. I'm telling you when it's going to happen. It's going to happen on the highest day of the Feast of Passover, on the day when when the lambs are being slaughtered. That's the day I'm going to die, and I'm going to die by crucifixion. 
Jesus' death during the feast of Passover was not an accident. That's why Matthew included that in there. That's why Jesus is making this statement. Those religious leaders are not in control. They think they are, but they're not. And everyone else thought they were when they saw the events occur. But you'll see as we go through the text of Matthew, that's clear that's not the case. Jesus' death during the Passover indeed exhibits the fact that God fulfills his promise to provide a sacrificial lamb that would take away the sins of the world. It reminds me of the proverb that says, Proverbs 19.21, Many are the plans of a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord, it will stand. And sure enough, those two days later, it did stand. And Jesus' death, the timing of Jesus' death and his resurrection confronted these men with ample evidence that they are not in ultimate control. If you read the end of of chapter 27 of Matthew's Gospel, which we'll take time to do here, you'll see that they're still scheming. They have put Jesus to death on the cross. They thought, oh, yeah, now we've got one more thing to do. Let's make sure nothing happens to the body in the tomb. And they station guards at the tomb. What's that about? Control. They are determined to control the scenario to be able to accomplish their goals of retaining their positions. And if Jesus somehow, his body is moved, somehow if there's some uh, uh, fulfillment of what he's been talking about of, of happening, it would ruin their potential for control. So they station those guards. Oh man, does it get good, doesn't it? And you think about what really happens there. It's amazing how the message begins to make clear. Now let me just back up and just say one more thing here. Regarding these religious leaders and their desire for control. Isn't it true that some of us struggle with the idol of our hearts of control and that the symptom of that struggle with that idolatry is because we are highly anxious. We are people who worry. We want our agenda to take place a certain way and if we're afraid it's not going to happen a certain way, we begin to become anxious and highly agitated, highly fearful. And some of us live our lives that way not realizing that we really want control. We want our lives to be according to our plan, rather than being willing to say, Lord, I trust you with your plan, whatever you have for me, you're in control. It's sad that another form of control we oftentimes see in our time is that there are parents who smother their children, who are living their lives through their children, who are so getting their children so active and involved in so many things, pushing their children to achieve and to be the best and do this and do that, that they're trying to attain their sense of importance through their children. And in that sense, they are trying to what? Be in control of what that child achieves and does. Why? Because they want themselves to look good because of their children. It's an idol of the heart. And we've recently seen another example of young uh, teenagers, well, I guess you'd say older teens, involved in a scandal, in the SAT cheating scandal we've read about recently here, right here on the island, What's that all about? Wanting to control my results so that I can achieve what I want to do because the idol is I want what I want and I'll do whatever it takes to get it. See, these are the issues that come, become clearly seen that Matthew says is a problem that many people struggle with, the, the idol of wanting to be in control. Well, let's look at another example here. Secondly, as we look at verses 14 to 16, Matthew gives an example of another person in the grip of an idolatrous heart, none other than Judas Iscariot. Judas had for three years professed loyalty to Jesus Christ, 
And like the religious leaders, he was a hypocrite. Because we find in this text that what actually has been going on is he's been camouflaging his heart's true devotion. His heart's true devotion is to himself. And you'll see more clearly as to what aspect of himself he was committed to. When Matthew wrote this gospel, he's had time to gather further facts that were not known at the time these events took place. But Matthew has pieced together the various facts and put them together in such a way he makes it very clear that on this occasion, in verses 14 to 16, Judas reveals his true colors. His true devotion has now become clear. He goes to the chief priests and he inquires of them and says, listen, how much money if I turn him over to you? How much money? What are you going to give me? Now, why would a person who for three years has convincingly, everybody on the, all those other disciples thought that Judas was a faithful follower. When Jesus said, one of you will betray me, they all looked like, well, who, who's going to do that? Who, who, who in the world is going to do that? They had no clue. How could, how could Judas pull this off so, so uh, uh, effectively? Well, I think the reason is because for three years he was excited about following Jesus. Why? Because he had been listening to him teach, he'd been listening to him in his miracles, and he became convinced that Jesus indeed was going to be the king, he was going to be the Messiah in a, in a wonderful and impressive way, and he was right there on his coattails ushering himself into greatness on behalf of his allegiance to Jesus. Because at this point, I believe, Judas begins to realize that his desire for this greatness is now he's becoming disillusioned. Why? Because Jesus has said once again, in two days, I'm going to be crucified. He's like, crucified? Are you kidding me? That's not my dream. That's not what I had planned for. That's not the bargain I was entering into this thing to get out of this. To be crucified is to be what? You will be killed by the most brutal and shameful process reserved only for criminals. So he's thinking, wait a minute. I came and I bought into this because I'm looking for glory. I'm looking for riches for myself because I am in a close association. I'm one of the inner core here of 12 people following him. And now my dream is falling apart. And yes, I'll settle for, for 30 measly pieces of silver, which, by the way, he is selling out so cheap because that was the price. If a slave died in the Old Testament, he was worth only 30 pieces of silver. Money... The love of money was the idol of Judas's heart. You say, come on, how do you get that just from this one incident? Well, there's further evidence. Suppose, that, look at the premise here about the comments that Jesus made about this woman. As she pours out this very, very, very expensive perfume on his head, according to John 12, here is specifically, we know Judas criticized along with several other disciples, but he specifically criticized and rebuked the woman who was demonstrating love for Jesus in this way, and he's, he knows that she's lavishing this expensive gift on him, and he's sitting there going, wait a minute. He's criticizing it. But why is he criticizing it? John 12 tells us clearly, it's Judas who was the treasurer. It's Judas who was holding the bag, as it were. He was the one keeping track of the money for the disciples. And John tells us that here he is protesting, saying, hey, that money could have been given to the poor. Meanwhile, 
He doesn't really mean that. Why? Because he's been snitching money. He's been embezzling money out of the bag into his own benefit. He's been stealing all these years from the bag. And John clarifies that he's giving disapproval to make it look like he has such noble intentions. Meanwhile, we read of this in John 12, verse 6. He wasn't generally concerned about the poor. He says because he said those things because he was a thief who used to pilfer the money put into the treasury or the money bag. Judas, you could say, knew the price of everything, but he knew the value of nothing. Judas was lost. Judas had never tasted the living water which eternally satisfies. He could not fathom why a person would be so generous with their possessions to Jesus who would die as a common criminal in utter disgrace and in in the most degrading form of execution available in his day. You see, Judas did not hesitate to express his disapproval of this costly sacrifice for Christ. Listen to me here. Cold hearts toward Jesus Christ make slow hands for sacrifice to give and to serve. If your heart is cold toward Christ, you don't really value and treasure Jesus Christ and see Him as the ultimate in value and and worthiness, it's not too surprising that your heart is going to be very reticent to share generously and sacrificially or to serve with any kind of zeal and enthusiasm. The heart that is not moved to love Jesus will not be moved to give generously to Him. But if you look at Luke verse 7 and other instances in which we've seen people express their love in such amazing ways, the one who loves much will give much. Wouldn't you say that the understanding that Paul talked about to the Corinthians when he talks about giving, he says that God loves a cheerful giver. We even mentioned that in our our church covenant we just read. Cheerful giving. Why is there cheerfulness in giving? How can anybody be cheerful in giving their money away to the kingdom? The answer is, if you look at the next verse where that's found in chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians, he says this, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance to every good deed. He's talking about the grace that we receive from Jesus Christ, a grace that helps us in every situation in life. Even if you have very little, you still can know the grace of God and be able to generously give to others in their, de- in their need. Judas never knew that. He never knew grace. He only knew himself. He only knew the need that he wanted to have money which gave gave him what he thought he could get nowhere else and that is give him what he wanted power to get what he wanted and to be important. I wonder for those of us here today is our heart willing to surrender surrender whatever it is that at one time you may have treasured in your life holding on tightly as something highly valuable to you, but now you've begun to understand that Jesus Christ is so much of a treasure you're willing to say This doesn't mean hardly anything to me anymore. Just like Paul saying, what used to be so highly treasured by me, all my credentials as a righteous, quote-unquote, self-righteous person, now has the worth to me of manure. 
absolutely, disgustingly of no value to me. In light of what? The riches of Jesus Christ and knowing Him. I wonder if any of us find ourselves admitting that we might have a long list of excuses. Excuses of why we would not and we would never really want to ever sacrificially give what we value to Jesus Christ or to others in the name of Jesus Christ. Do we look down on other people who do so? Do we have a Judas heart within us? I wonder if you've concluded that Jesus Christ is such a valuable treasure that you're willing to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus because He is that pearl of great price. That for the joy it is to know Christ and to be known by Christ, it's far worth losing anything and everything in order to gain that. That is a sign, my friend, of a heart that's to be changed. And Judas, unfortunately, shunned his cross. He didn't want to take up his cross. And he was willing to betray the Christ of the cross. Why? Because his heart was enamored with the idol of the love of money. What a tragedy. What a tragedy indeed to be around Christ and to miss the wonders and the treasure that all he is. And clearly that's what Matthew's trying to point out here. What a sad loss these people have done because of the idols in their hearts. Look how he contrasts this now to the heart that's devoted to Christ. Where we see love expressed in such a beautiful way, bracketed by these two passages which portray these people's hearts that are so enamored in their own self-fulfillment and their own concern for their idolatrous desires being fulfilled. Matthew now has included this account of this anonymous woman who took her most valuable possession. It's a costly vial, a little container of perfume. It's made out of a, a material called alabaster. It's a stone uh, that's fairly soft and can be carved into very intricate and beautiful kinds of containers. And so she has this container that's sealed with this very expensive perfume, probably imported from India, perhaps, uh, or somewhere else from that area uh, far away. And she is going to use it up entirely on Jesus. Now, I think Matthew is fascinated by this. Why? Because Matthew is one of the few people sitting around watching this who has been or knows what it is to be rich. He knows the value of expensive things. He knows what things cost. He has operated in those spheres. Maybe he's had one of those in his own possession. I don't know. I'm reading into things at that point. But I think it's significant that Matthew, the tax collector, who's turned his back on all that, but lived a lifestyle of having so much of the world's goods, he says, oh my word, this, the value of that? Does she know what she's doing with that? Sacrificially giving costly perfume to Jesus was really the overflow of this woman's heart. It's the expression of her heart in an outward way, a heart that was satisfied in Jesus, a heart that was greatly in love with Jesus. And this woman was unconcerned with what the other people thought of her. She, was, she did not let her critics dissuade her from what she chose to do. She chose to anoint the anointed one, which is what Messiah Christos, that's what that word means, anointed one. She is going to anoint the anointed one on his head because she heard and she believed 
that Jesus, what he said about his imminent death, she really believed he was going to die. She said, well, I want to give you my most valuable gift before you leave, before you die. I want you to have it. I want you to have this wonderful aroma and to bequeath it upon you. Have you ever known anybody whose heart was so filled of love they didn't mind making a sacrifice? I know years ago, a young man who was known to be very tight with his money, very tight, who saved. He was a saver. There was a time in which his heart became enamored with a wonderful young woman that was brought into his life. And at that point, there was no hesitation in this guy who loved to save money in going out and saying, I'm willing to spend probably the biggest investment of this hard-earned money I've done. I'm going to buy a, a wonderful ring. I'm going to become uh, willing to make a sacrifice of myself and, uh, and ask this woman to be her wife, his wife. And he did it as an expression of what? Reluctance, saying, oh, no, I don't want to. No way. I'm not going to give. Gonna, come on. How about that Cracker Jack, you know, that little thing, that little ring, you know, you find... No, no, no. There was a sense in which because of the appreciation for the recipient of the ring, the, the tight-wadded, cheap uh, uh, guy who was holding on to his money became what? More than willing to spend it, realizing that the one he was, whose love he enjoyed and the one who he wanted to give himself to would be the recipient of that ring. Did, was it drudgery to give a gift when you love someone? Absolutely not. Now, this tightwad, I must let you know, just to fill us the story, is not always so noble. I must confess, 30 years later, having been married to that wonderful woman all those years, it took maybe seven, maybe eight, maybe ten conversations to convince this tightwad to spend some money and take her on a trip to go celebrate 30 years of marriage, which was a patience of my wife, which I'm so thankful that she did, and I can talk about her because she's not here. But the point is this. I don't want to put myself on a pedestal. The point is what? That love, love for one wants to give. Love does not couch things and say, well, I'm not sure you. Love generously gives. And how you say, well, how can you get to someone who loves that much? Look at this woman. I believe she not only had love exhibited, but she also, love expressed, but she also had lowliness exhibited. Lowliness exhibited. This woman, who by the way is Mary, Martha and Mary, Sisters of Lazarus. We know that's who this woman is, but she's not mentioned here by name. She lavishly expressed her love for Jesus, not holding back even her most precious possession. And give this costly gift, why? She calculated the fact that once she broke the neck of that jar, once you break the jar that contained this type of expensive perfume, and once those contents are poured out, her promise of financial security very likely faded away. This was probably something of a, 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 uh, a family heirloom, something you hang on to that's sort of passed down to you as this is the most valuable thing you can sort of have around in case things get really, really tight and the disaster comes. And so she gave away this thing because why? She sensed perhaps more than any of the disciples that the moments that she had at hand were precious moments. Her Lord would not be with her much longer. And she gave what she could while she could. She gave what she could while she could. You say, what was it that prompted that? I would suggest to you, if you study through Mary 
and follow her life through when she's mentioned in the Gospels, where do you find her? She's not filled with herself. She's not a person who's all about Mary, Mary, Mary. She's a person who is at the feet of Jesus. She is humbly recognizing his greatness, his value, his worth, the power of his words. She's submitting to him. She is a person who grew and who developed a heart of humility. Such a contrast with with, um, Judas and these religious leaders. Every time she's there in Scripture, her heart is humbly being taught, humbly looking up to Christ. She's blown away by the grace and love of Christ, realizing she's unworthy and amazed at his grace and love. And so she gave generously. I want to also point out that her heart was fully surrendered. She gave to Christ her most valuable possession completely and fully. She didn't just give a couple of drips and then put the seal, somehow try to put something back into the neck of the bottle again and seal it up. She gave all the perfume once she broke it open. And in reading about her full devotion, I asked myself some tough questions. Does my devotion to Christ ever cost me anything? She did what she could when she could. What about me? What about you? Would you say you're surrendered to Christ? That is, take my wife, take my life, take my children, take what I have in my possessions, take my job, take anything I have. I'm yours because I treasure you more than anything. I don't love you in order to get what I want and fulfill my dreams. I love you because you have given yourself to me. This is a powerful dynamic once we understand that the cross In view of the cross of Jesus Christ, the price that was paid as a love of Christ for his own, he redeemed and rescued us. I wanted to ask yourself, are your talents available to him? (laughs) Is your time available to God to be used in ways that would accomplish his agenda, not just yours? I want to come across this quote by Sam Storms which will not necessarily sound like it ties in here, but follow me, would you please? It's about six sentences long, but look how he ties us together. Understanding the value of Christ and the the issue of being so enraptured by him and the greatness of his love and grace, it changes the dynamic of how I live my life. Watch this. Quote, It is a dreary holiness, indeed, that is merely resisting sin. If all I do in my life is to say, no, 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 What a tough life that is in living for Christ. The joy of holiness is found in having heard a sweeter song. This is the true meaning of grace. Grace does not demonize our desires, nor destroy them, nor lead us to deny them. Grace is the working of the Holy Spirit in transforming our desires so that knowing Jesus becomes sweeter than blank. Sweeter than what? Self-indulgence. Sweeter than illicit sex. Sweeter than money and what money can buy. Sweeter than every fruitless joy. Grace is God satisfying our souls with His Son so that we're ruined for anything else. Unquote. I love that quote. And I ask myself, is that the way I view Christ? 
Or is the reason I go back into my sinful patterns in my life is because Christ is not that to me. The more I love and am satisfied with Christ, the less sin entices me. John Piper says. Well, I've got to move on here. A couple of things I need to close here with in order to fully look at the whole text. I want us to look at Jesus' reaction to this expression of this woman's deep devotion. Stay with me here. Notice an illustration here. Jesus' words must have been reassuring to this woman. Having received such strong criticism by those who were seated in the room, Jesus made it clear that in keeping with the custom of giving gifts at Passover, that was the custom, you would give a gift of alms to the poor, He says essentially that her gift made perfect sense because Jesus became the poorest of the poor. (laughs) Jesus gave his entire self away on that cross as he died in absolute abject poverty, the lowest of the low. And by accepting this gift, Jesus was illustrating that as the perfume is poured out in great blessing for him and those around him, so his blood was poured out to bring great blessing to those who apply it to their hearts. 2 Corinthians Chapter 8, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that through his poverty we might become rich. Indeed, she did give the right gift for the poor. Number two, clarification. We need to clarify that some may wrongly conclude about this passage, something to the effect that they're saying, well, in light of what Jesus said, we should not be caring for the poor. We should not be involved in social concerns. We should sort of realize it's just going to happen. It's part of the reality of what's going on in our world. May I suggest you go back and read Matthew 25. Go back and read Matthew 10:42. Go back and read James 1:27. Too many, and, and tons of Old Testament scriptures. There are too many scriptures explicitly teaching that we must and we ought to assist and help the poor period that's not something that should be thought of as 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 somehow contradicted by this passage that's not the teaching at all and number three affirmation here in this text jesus affirmed the lasting significance of her selfless sacrificial gift he assured her that her generous gift would serve as a memorial to her throughout all ages. So that whenever the Gospels are read, we review this woman's devotion to Jesus. We keep alive her memory. Here's this woman who lived so many years ago. We're still talking about her. We're still talking about her gift. And the people in that room, on that occasion, they knew that that expensive aroma of that perfume eventually would what? It's going to fade away. Eventually, you could not smell it any longer. It would dissipate over time. What seemed to some people to be a monumental loss was actually a lasting investment that still today has value. Same thing when you invest in the kingdom. Your investment is that which has lasting value and significance. And So give now what you can so that its impact can be felt throughout eternity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this powerful and rich text of Scripture. 
that like a sharp blade exposes our hearts to idolatry. Oh, Lord, help all of us who read this text that dare think we don't have an idol in our hearts. Lord, help us to see the clear evidence that there are things, people or things, Lord, created things that we value more than we value you. Help us to see these things, Lord, to be able to admit them. Help us to acknowledge, to turn away from them, Lord, to repent of those things. Help us to cherish Christ. Open our eyes, Lord, to see the incredible, immeasurable treasure of Jesus Christ and to realize there is nothing greater than He. Help us, Lord, to say, I'll sacrifice anything. I'll lay it aside for the wonderful privilege of having the greatest treasure of all, the pearl of greatest price, Jesus Christ, to be the one who will ultimately satisfy the longings of our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would free us up from making mud pies in the slums when we could be enjoying the extreme pleasures of being in fellowship with Jesus Christ as if we have gone to the beach enjoying the most wonderful vacation ever. Help us, Father, to see the glories of knowing Christ and being satisfied in Him. And therefore, Lord, having the the stronghold of sin in our hearts be somehow lessened and, and somehow, Lord, depower that so that we might truly love the one we're designed to love, Jesus Christ, and be satisfied in Him, we pray. In the strong name of Christ, the one who gave himself, who became poor for us. We pray in his name. Amen.